Hello and how delightful of you to join me again. Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast for those hungry for great food and scintillating conversation. Each week I chat to guests over lunch out or, as in recent times, a takeaway and a video call. And you, lucky listener, get to listen in on our conversation as if you were here with us. Food really opens a person up. It gets them to spill all the best secrets, which is fitting because this week I share some cracking Indian food with someone who's made his name, creating suspense and intrigue through the revelation of great secrets in hit dramas like Cardiac Arrest, Line of Duty and Bodyguard. It's the writer and TV producer, Jed Mercurio. And I can reveal exclusively, Jed. Come on, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm moving forward. (laughs) Hello, Jed Mercurio. It's lovely to meet you. Hello, Jay Rayner. It's very nice to meet you too. Now, this is called, well, it's out to lunch. We're in for lunch for for obvious reasons at this moment. The lockdown is still in place. Um, And you sent us only one dietary requirement, which was he likes spicy food. That was what we got back. Um, When you were a young man, when you were in the RAF, you've talked about uh, being a bit of an adrenaline junkie, trying to land planes as hard as you could to pull as many Gs as possible. Is spice... Is that the last residual part of the adrenaline junkie in Jed Mercurio? <laughs> That's a very interesting analysis of my preferences with food. Um, I don't know. I think it's just part of maybe my um, relationship with food as I kind of developed wider horizons. When I when I left home um, and went to university, I became a an enthusiastic follower of curry culture. Um, and that's kind of still shaped uh, a, a lot of what my kind of social dining is. I just, I, I love going for a curry with mates. Line of Duty, first cop series, what was in your head? Did you immediately go, wouldn't it be great if the police were investigating the police? AC-12, corruption... I'm sure people have asked you where AC 11, 9, 10, 7, 8. Occasionally they do appear, don't they? You've had some other AC. Yeah. So we've had uh, AC 9, AC 6 and AC 3 have all appeared in in the series uh, or or certainly been referred to. There is this amazing story that you sent, you know, early drafts and stuff to the Met to see if they give you support. And it starts with them shooting dead an innocent man. And they came back to you and said, we would never do this, despite the fact that they'd done exactly that at Stockwell Tube Station. Yeah, I think that the, the I, I think the point that they were making or trying to make was that they'd moved on ah. from shooting innocent people. <laughs> so I'm not laughing at the uh, shooting dead of innocent people. That I should should be said. Were you were you surprised by that when the Met didn't want to have anything to do with you? No, I wasn't surprised. Um what I'd found with, with medical shows was that the, the the big institutions, the the policy forming institutions like the British Medical Association or the General Medical Council, um, or the you know the, the NHS executive would never want to get involved in shows like cardiac arrest or bodies because they dealt in subjects that were controversial, and a lot of that support is PR led. So with the police, it. It was the same story, that the police will get involved with technical support for shows that promote a positive image of the police, but they won't get involved with shows that deal with subjects that the police find sensitive, such as 
internal corruption. Your shows seem all of them deal with moral ambiguity. Yeah, because I think that's where the story lies. I think that there's a really interesting story around people who are in public services and have gone into them for idealistic reasons being corrupted by that experience. And often bureaucracies end up being more about self-protection than carrying out the public service that they were designed for. And you can find lots of examples of that in medicine and in the police. So the examples that I found in medicine, uh, in, in the police, like in medicine, such as the shooting dead of Jean-Charles de Menezes, um, these were things that, that shone a light on how an institution coped with error or negligence in exactly the same way as you can look at medical negligence and see how the institutions all too often behave in a, in a, in a dishonest way to try and manufacture a cover-up. Um, Jed, I have to say, I think your food is there. If you go okay. downstairs, you should find it. No, it's coming now. Right, it's mine's coming. just arrived. Bear with me a second. Food. Oh, here we go. Food, Oh, yeah. Oh, here's the food, Joe. My, mine's just arrived too, so I'm going to go down and get mine, okay? I'll be back with you in a minute. Brilliant. All right, cheers. Right, so you did say that you like spicy food, so I went looking for a good Indian restaurant <laughs> near you, and there is a place in Isha uh, called Dust, okay. Dastan. Uh, yes. which was set up only, I think, last year by two of the guys right. from a very good, very, very good London, uh, central London restaurant called Jim Gymkhana. Um, okay, yes, I know that one. So it's the guys from Jim Gymkhana, the former head chef and kitchen people from Jim Gymkhana who set up Dastan in Isha. And so for your starters, you will find chicken lollipops and samosa chat, which is the one, he, he, when, I, when I suggested that to him, he said, um, will I be able to finish it? Would Jed be able to finish it? So it needed some finishing. Um, so I, I don't know if this is going to be any anything like a, a memory of Selly Oak. <laughs> uh, is going for a curry still a, a big thing uh, in your life? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, virtually all my mates enjoy curry. Like, say, on Line of Duty, for example, uh, we, we go for a curry when we're filming probably twice a week. Um, oh, seriously? Yeah. How many of you? Well, it's I mean, the, the hardcore. So it's it's um, Martin Compton, Vicky McClure, and Adrian Dunbar, and I, and we're, we're the ones who've been involved in the series right from the first episode. And when we course. shot the first series in Birmingham, and um, that um, is obviously the curry capital of the UK, of and uh, th there was a, a brilliant curry house next door to where we were. Um, Based, where our main set was and the, the the hotel we were staying in. So the four of you, do, do Martin, Adrian, Vicky, do they have particular take on the on the British curry house repertoire? They love the lamb chops to start with, and then they'll often go um, the shashlik route for a main course. Uh, and it's a great night, you know. It's just we we get on very well. We talk about the show, and we did get a lot of work done while we're kind of hanging out. So I'm, I'm just going right. to explain where, what I've got. So there's a, a restaurant in Brixton in South London where I live called Cricket. Um, oh, yeah. And they they opened in a, a originally in a shipping container in Pop Brixton. Then they opened one in the centre of town. And now they've opened one back in Brixton in some of the arches. Uh, and I have to say, um, this is a joy for me because I've been getting this 
uh, through lockdown anyway. So I'm very, oh, very, fantastic. very, very happy. I've been to cricket in uh, the one in, uh, where the old BBC building was. Oh, yes. You know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's great. So going back, had it been any ambition to work in television? Or did you see yourself being a doctor, given how long you were training for? There was absolutely no idea that I would ever have any kind of media career. That's not something I'd grown up with, where I went to school. It felt like people on TV came from very different backgrounds from mine. And I also wasn't particularly encouraged to do creative things for the same reason. It was that that wouldn't lead to gainful employment. So I've, I've painted this picture here of a highly achieving young man with, you know, moving through various serious careers, the ones that bring respect. And yet what happens is you get invited into the world of television and at some point, and I'd love to know about the, the crossover when you actually went and resigned from the hospital where you were a junior doctor and said... But what I really want to be is a writer. What happened? And I want to know about that in the, in, in the whole, you know, the round. Because it's not, you're telling your colleagues, your contemporaries, you're telling your seniors, you're telling your parents as well, who I'm sure must have had an opinion. It never really happened in that way, though, Jay. It wasn't that I um, reached a kind of sliding doors moment, a, a, a pivotal moment where... I had to choose between the two. I was happily carrying on my uh, my my chosen career in parallel to the association I was having with the development of the series that became Cardiac Arrest. And then when I was asked to write a script and that got written and eventually the BBC greenlit the series for production, uh, I honestly didn't expect or plan that it was going to change the ultimate direction of my life the series went out and i just thought that would be that but actually it did it did well and it was recommissioned and then i wanted to write more and so that was the point where in order to be involved more in the writing um and more in the production of the series i decided to take a sabbatical so i was i was in a job that was meant to last three years in six month chunks. And so all I did was delay a, delay six months. I was meant to start a renal job in August and of 1994. And I just spoke to the hospital and they uh, postponed it. So I was gonna go on the renal unit. In, so you're meant to be up to your uh, nipples in piss and kidneys and instead you moved into television. <laughs> yeah. uh, so by the way, uh, this is a terrible segue. Do you wanna try your main courses? Do you wanna move on? Mm, yeah. So you yeah. have got um, a pork cheek vindaloo. Now I have to be honest, knowing the, this restaurant, I suspect that that's not normally on the high street, as you know, vindaloo signifies very hot. Although yes. the actual vindaloo is a Portuguese-influenced dish with a sort of vinegar notes. So it's possibly not quite as fiery as you might, you know. I, I would never order a vindaloo in a restaurant. Right, I don't think this is going to be very... Why is that? Because you think it's vulgar, kind of? No, I think it's too hot. Yeah, I suspect it won't be. Look, mate, you were the one who said um, the I want I spicy. Mean, I, to, to, I remember going out... When I was in the Air Force, yeah. I remember going out for a curry night with the whole squadron. Yeah. And this was in the University Air Squadron. And one of the instructors ordered a vindaloo to show how hard he was. And then one of the other instructors decided to order a file to compete. And these two guys just made themselves ill. The guy who ordered the file 
basically had two two forkfuls and gave up. Um, so, well, I, I, on the other end, I've got a lamb korma here from uh, cricket, and you've got the the pork tube vindaloo. As I you've say, you've got a lamb korma. Well, it was it's a, it's quite a short menu at cricket, actually. Are you going from one end to the other, going talking about it's too hot, and then you think I'm being a, a wimp for getting a lamb korma? I well, in terms Are of curries, I me, tend Jeff? to order meat. I order somewhere in in the middle, so. You know, I would I would maybe go to Madras strength if I fancied that, but basically I would go for sort of medium. So you know, the Buna type. Strength. Well, let's find out what your what your Port Vindaloo from Dustan is is like. As I say, I suspect yeah. it's more drawing on the Portuguese influence than it is on the. Let's have a night out with the boys and see who can compete with each other. Um, <laughs> okay, here we go. Now I have to say, my vin, uh, my lamb korma is actually rather more fiery than I would expect of a korma, and I'm expecting that your uh, pork cheek vindaloo is rather less hot than you might imagine. Yes. Yeah. And are there this... This is what's called regression to the mean. <laughs> I know all about regression to the mean. We're, <laughs> we're, we're meeting each other in the middle, aren't we? <laughs> what did you think of the world of television that you'd entered? As a, a guy who's... You, you know, yeah. you weren't a liberal arts graduate. You hadn't been all jazz hands and parts in <laughs> Romeo and Juliet at school, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I was ill-fitting um, would be a way to describe it. Um, I had never met actors ever. The idea of being so vague and imprecise in your use of terms was completely alien to me. You know, coming from technical things where... You, you specify exactly what you mean in scientific terms. Otherwise, you don't even get a place in the conversation. Meant that at times I just really struggled to understand how anything got done, that, that people seem to accept the vaguest instructions from a director or some of the notes that were given on the script were very vague. Um, and it was a learning process. You know, I... I uh, I definitely was ill-fitting. Looking back, it took me a while. It must have taken me a couple of years to kind of learn the language, not just in terms of the received language, but the expressed language, that there were times when I did express myself in far too cold and factual a way or it was too technical, and then people found that um, off-putting. Was that possibly your USP in that world? That, you know, I don't know. I think that you know it's important that you get on with your colleagues and that you gain that your that their trust. It's important that people feel they can talk to you. It's important that people feel you're a collaborator. So it it it, it was definitely not in my best interest or the best interest of the program for me not to be able to learn how to talk like a lovey. So I just did. Can you speak fluent lovey now, Jed? Oh. I'll tell you what, I can teach a class in lovely now. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I have to say, my uh, I've got taka dal here. You've got a um, an aubergine masala. My taka dal is very, very good. It's not yeah, a big... no, that the I've, I've tucked in very nicely. Thank you. Jolly good. Um, it's all great. I've really enjoyed this. It's quite quite unusual for me to have this kind of decadent to lunch. I'd like to claim the same of me, but, uh, you know, given I do a podcast called Out to Lunch, we all know that's a lie. <laughs> so so what, what were you thinking with, with um, Line of Duty, that it was a one-off that, or that it could have legs? Um, definitely returnability was part of the pitch. Definitely, like with, with all my other series, the, the idea that if it succeeded there'd be an opportunity to come back in some form. And it was very important with Line of Duty because of the unusual format of the series to get that message across to the BBC. Unusual in what way? That it, that, that it was definitely a, a serial... I always get these... Compl- it, it, was, it, it was the fact that it was a serial, but also the fact that the it followed um, what appeared to be the lead character... DCI Tony Gates, played by Lenny James, to a natural conclusion. And so it wasn't 100% clear that it was a returnable series, but the broadcaster needed to understand that it was so that if we were fortunate enough to be a hit, that they would think in terms of recommissioning it. And unfortunately, they did see it as being a hit. So they were already primed to listen to a pitch for a, for a second season. And what we'd done was option the three investigators, uh, Martin, Vicky and Adrian's characters, were all conceived to come back in a second season and investigate a new guest lead character. And that was what became the Lindsay Denton character played by Keely Hawes. Which creates this brilliant dynamic, which is you can get big names in to play these huge parts in each series and kill them. <laughs> well, not necessarily, but, you know, you, 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 can, you can play fast and loose with them. Everybody knows, well, I'm not going to presume because I wouldn't put it past you to kill off anybody in any of your series, but everybody knows that Adrian Dunbar and uh, Vicky McClure and Martin Compton, they're there for the run. That, that's, they are the, the rock up in, upon which everything rests until you do happen to kill one of them, if that happened. But the others, there is a dynamic there because they are in peril all the way through. You never know what's going to happen to them. I think you're right in terms of the guest lead. I mean, in terms of um, the regulars, um, we do put them in peril every season. Mm. And, and every season we do consider the pros and cons of something terrible happening to them that means that they can't carry on. Um, and, and, and so they're, not, they're certainly not um, immune from it. How do you, how do you control script, a script release? Do they, does everybody get a whole episode or is it need to know, here are your pages for the day? Oh, everybody gets the episodes. We're not, we, we don't keep secrets from the, the cast and we're, we try to be as open as possible. So as soon as scripts are ready, they're in a, they're in a final filmable form, then they're released. Um, so the, the cast will definitely have all the scripts well before any of the scenes that um, are relevant uh, to those episodes being filmed. Have you had any leaks over the years? as it was going out with someone sneaking across to, you know, one of the tabs saying, yeah, for 10 grand, I can tell you what happens in the next episode. 
We haven't had that type of spoiler leak, and generally people will play ball with that. The, the, the issues with really trying to keep a lid on it only really applied when when um, Keely Hawes came back in Series 3. Mm. And then we'd managed to keep that secret. We we hadn't had any announcements at all about her being in it. Uh, and we were filming on the streets of Belfast and she was there for everyone to see. But no one seemed to care, so it was fine. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was, it was still a BBC Two series then. The audience was maybe four million. It, it wasn't something that was big news. It's only since... Haven't you closed off a series at over 10 million? Yeah. So we're, now that we're, we're, we're a much more conspicuous series with a much larger following, then the tabloids are much more interested in us. So yes, it's possible. Uh, but what you tend to find is that they'll write just a, a clickbait headline. So one of the cast will do an interview and then they'll manufacture a, a headline that sounds more revealing yeah, than anything they've actually said. And we did we did have a little bit of someone um, trying to release information to the tabloids about negative events uh, involved in the show. And again, those were things that, because they weren't true, it was pretty easy to push back on those. One of the other things that's obviously happened since you launched is not the birth it was there before but um the arrival of streaming of not watching on schedule on broadcast so whereas probably series one you made an appointment and you watched avidly whatever night it went out that was when you watched now not so much do you worry about that or do you think your job is to be so compelling that people will try and watch it as quickly as they bloody can is that part of your i role? think that's a uh Look, I, I think it's a really good point. And, and again, there's a nuanced answer, I'm afraid. Um, you and your nuanced answer. <laughs> I know, I need to stop. Yeah. I mean, don't worry, I don't do... If I was doing this for a regular newspaper interview, oh, yeah. I, I, I certainly wouldn't go nuanced because there's just no point. <laughs> but because they'll just, are you, are you they'll saying just... that I can cope with nuance, Jed? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying that this is a live recording <laughs> and people will be able to hear exactly what yeah, I said no, rather, than, rather than a version of it. So... In terms of that linear audience, as it's called, the people who uh, are only able to watch a program uh, when it's transmitted, usually in the same slot the following week, then that's the traditional form. And it's still the dominant form in terms of d domestic viewing. But the fact that there's this whole other way of viewing now of being able to catch up if you missed a live transmission um, or if you haven't seen any of a series and then months or even years later, you can dive into it. I think that's brilliant. And I remember earlier in my career, I mean, I'm going back maybe nearly 20 years, um, commissioners or, or executives warning against making plots too complex because audiences would have one opportunity to watch an episode and if they didn't get all the intricacies of it they would be confused and they wouldn't watch the next episode and so the fact that now you can't make that argument and there's a lot of evidence and this is the important thing the fact that there's a lot of evidence that people will re-watch shows that they love and get more out of the complex shows than they did on a first viewing means that 
writers, and, and I'm one of them, writers who want to add layers of complexity, want to add things into the story that are maybe tiny little moments that a lot of people might miss, um, not necessarily just on a first viewing, but on any viewing. You know, things that things that are you basically are, saying you scatter Easter eggs throughout your scripts? I think there's a desire to be abstruse <laughs> at times and to, to for your own pleasure to, or for the audience. Does it give you pleasure to do that? For both. I mean, the fact that I know that if you've got an audience measured in 10 million plus, there are going to be some of them who get the most obscure little reference, then I think that's very satisfying. I wouldn't make a plot hinge on it because then I think that that would be alienating for the audience who can't get it. But to put these little things in, um, I think just adds to the overall experience for the loyal fans. Yeah, I, I think there's an acceptable point where, you know, you can get into spoilers when, when series one to five have, have been out. Are there any of these brilliantly obscure little things that you can think of which gives you a little warm frisson of pleasure you can think back to? Well, I suppose the one that immediately comes to mind is during the last season of Line of Duty, season five on BBC One, when a small plot point hinged on the spelling of definitely. <laughs> yeah, we all got that. <laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. And, and, and some people thought it was a mistake. And to be honest, it's not beyond the, the, the capability of our art department to spell <laughs> things wrong. Believe you me. But um, there were some people who didn't notice, some who thought it was a mistake, and obviously for others it was the the intended Easter egg. Um, And there are others kind of scattered through. There are are characters who were sometimes referred to who who haven't even been met yet. Um, And I can reveal exclusively, Joe. Come on. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm moving forward. In In season six, there is a character who has been referred to in a past season but never met, who we do meet in season six. Let's move on to the more jolly subject of dessert. You have got, um, it it says Kala Jamin. I'm assuming it's a similar version of Gulab Jamin, which are the spongy balls in syrup, which is what I've got. Um, So do you have a fully functioning pancreas, Jeb Mercuria? I do. Oh, good, because it might just put in a letter of resignation if you eat too much of this. Let me ask you briefly about the bodyguard. Was the bodyguard sort of a way of continuing line of duty by other means? They seem like they're in what we used to call allied trades. So it is sort of a police show, but it's also a political show. It's plotty in the same sort of way, but it enters a different arena. You couldn't have two series of Line of Duty a year. So this one popped up as a a sort of, felt like a Christmas present to the audience. (laughs) No, it's actually that um, if if we wanted to do uh, a version of Line of Duty that had that plot, then we, we could have done it. Yeah. Clearly, we could have done. But actually, the genesis of Bodyguard was different. It, it went back to when Line of Duty was on BBC Two. And so the head of drama back then, Ben Stevenson, wanted uh, me to, to explore the idea of doing something that might work as a thriller on BBC One. Uh, and so that was when I started working on what eventually became Bodyguard. But going back to the actual reason for commissioning it, they they were definitely intended to occupy very different spaces 
on the schedule. Um, uh, my own particular tastes and interest. I'm, I'm a politi- political junkie. Um, police procedurals, I love them. I mean, it, it pressed every single button. I adored it in every way. Season two of Bodyguard, is there one? Do we know where what's happening? Can you tell us when, where? Don't tell us what happens. Don't want to know. Um, so, Joe, I can exclusively reveal oh, yes. <laughs> that there are no plans for me to answer that question. Oh. Jed Mercuria, that is not fair. But the only reason you would uh, have no plans to answer that question is if you were in detailed conversations or advanced stages of writing scripts. There you go. That's what I'm saying. Well, it's interesting that you can say something that contains so many inaccuracies in such a short statement. I'm just trying to lead you on. That's all. You are the Matt Hancock of podcasts. Oh my! You can you can you can compress your you your inaccuracies down into the simplest level. So you you can't even say whether there's an ambition to do a, a season two of Bodyguard. Uh, ambition is my middle name. Well, then let me ask you a different question, um, which is. You are, you know, one of the great names of British television drama. What is the ambition? Although, I mean, not as in, you know, where do you see yourself in five years' time? What are the things you want to do from the position you're in, which is a privileged one? It's a good one. I think you're right. I mean, it certainly is a very fortunate and privileged position. You know, as a writer, you dream of getting to the point where people watch your work in in such large numbers, but also that that you get a little bit of name recognition as well. You know, I'm, I, I'm always encouraging the, the the actors to take centre stage. They're obviously the, the the face of the show, and they they drive all the publicity. But the fact that that people who write about television are recognising my input in into the work is is incredibly flattering. Um. In terms of immediate ambitions, I, I really want to carry on with Line of Duty. I think it's still got some ground to cover, and I'm I'm hoping that that people will. So does that mean series series six is not necessarily the end? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Fair enough. I what I what I do know is I, I think that season six proves that there is much more ground for us still to cover. Fair enough. Uh, and then in terms of other projects, you know, I, I think that. I learned a lot from the success of Bodyguard. Um, I, I, it really um, was very heartening to see the way in which an audience would come to something that was completely fresh and original. Because so much, so much content is an adaptation of something that was a book or a film, but Bodyguard was just a, a, an original concept. And the fact that we we hit the ground running and people really got into the characters and stories, made, made a, a, a huge impact, I think, on what my ambition is for doing more original series. So I, I would love to do something within the next couple of years that, that if it isn't Bodyguard 2, then it is something on the same scale as that. Excellent. Well, look, Jed, um, thank you for taking the time to stay in for lunch with me. I hope you're... Uh... Your curry has has been, or we didn't even talk about the Grimleys, um, which is no, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't anyway. discuss the Grimleys. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time and for being so open with me about the prospects of season two of Bodyguard, because it's one of my special moments. And being called the Matt Hancock of podcasting, will I'm, well, I'm basically I'm going <laughs> off for therapy now. All it remains to say is, Jim Mercurio, thank you for staying in for lunch with me. 
Well, wasn't that fun? Uh, Jed is a master of suspense and even managed to bring me to the edge of my seat without always answering the question I'd asked him. So I checked in with the BBC press office, who said they had nothing to say about a second season of Bodyguard, despite all the rumours all over the web. But they did say that season six of Line of Duty is, quote, coming soon. For God's sake, do hurry up. Uh, Jed had chicken lollipops, samosa chat and pork cheek vindaloo from the brilliant Dastan in Epsom, uh, which is doing takeaway and delivery to its local area. And I had a fabulous Tarkadal and Korma from Cricket in Brixton, which is also delivering. Still hungry? There are plenty more episodes of Out to Lunch to listen to. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe so you never miss a meal? Oh, go on. Give us five stars. It's the very least we deserve. Out to Lunch is a something else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The producer was Jemima Rathbone and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's pop star and kitchen disco queen, Sophie Ellis-Bexter. What's the quickest one of your guests has ever eaten their lunch? (laughs) 